Good morning. Um, this episode I don't suggest anyone listen to because it's just me rambling and rambling and rambling. But I pub- I'm going to publish it anyway just so I have something published today. Sorry about that, guys. Alright. Well, I've been thinking about this issue of recursive types. Starting with the linked list. Where basically the node can point to the next item in the list, and it could be either null or not, and that's like your basic recursive type. So the next type of recursion would be when you extend that loop to be bigger. So you could just insert something else between it. You could say, well, the list points to something else and that something else points back at the list, but it closes the loop. So again, if you scan the type system, it's gonna loop back. And you could just keep on inserting more and more items in between until, you know, you don't even know immediately that it's going to create a recursion. Like, it could be introduced way, way, way later. So I think that's the first thing that I realize um, that you could basically hide and you could think that there's no recursion for a long time and then all of a sudden whammo it just hits you um way later after you made a lot of decisions so that's one thing and i think that kind of gets close to this paradox now the next thing that i wanted to talk about was a self-descriptive system where the tree structure can describe itself Right? So not only is it recursive in terms of, um, not only is it recursive in terms of um, the type points back at the type, but it's also recursive on another level that the type can describe itself in full. So the tree can contain an entire description of itself and not know it. So I don't even know if that means anything or not. But um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that objects of the type tree can describe classes of the type tree or even other objects of the type tree. And we're going to get into all types of different types of recursion here, or self-referentiality. I'm not too sure uh, if I got my terms right or not. And it's kind of a slippery subject. So the first thing is 
like <clears throat> you can have a simple structure and then you have a description of that structure let's say the tree that describes it all right so you've got a uh, structure name and a bunch of fields and let's say we limit those types of the fields and we just say we can have integers and floats so all of that's honky-dory now as soon as you allow a pointer right and you can say we'll have a pointer to okay but before we even get to that obviously um, everything can be encoded into an integer so you could encode the entire you know source code of the program into an integer and slam it into one of those fields or make a row of records so there's all these different ways you can encode and make something that's self-referential and then you could make things that would decode that as well I mean that's also possible and crazy but it's, it's doable and this is kind of getting into where Girdle was working on, like, encoding everything into an integer. And then embedding that whole thing into the integer system. And then, um, causing all types of mayhem there. All types of, um, paradoxes. So... So basically what I'm thinking is so we have let's say structure descriptions and field descriptions and type descriptions to start with simple types like this is your classic database table. And if you just have integers, I guess you could just use a matrix for your table of vectors, like sets of vectors. Walking up a hill here, so maybe I might breathe a little bit. You all know my breathing from my walks. Um, so, if a structure is just a list of names of integers, and they're all the same type, that's super easy. Then just have a column ordering. Um, well, but you can't describe the structures themselves using structures then, because we need strings. And of course you can encode strings as integers as well. You can encode everything as an integer. But let's say we allow strings 
as a type. So you've got a field struct, and the field struct has the name of the field, let's say, <clears throat> its position, it's got a way to determine its position, could be a linked list. Could have a pointer to its parent, the struct that it's in. Size of the field could be determined from its type. Yeah, and then see the structs are packed in so you know exactly how big they're going to be. Now, <clears throat> in C, you can also have an embedded field, like you can have the whole struct embedded. Like one struct can be embedded in another struct, or you can have a pointer to it. So you can create all types of nested structures and complicated structures. Now each of these pointers could, in theory, be recursive. So that's the first thing. And you could go into unlimited re recursion, unless you track, you know, Unless you track uh, what you've seen so far, and you note, okay, we're back in a loop. We just talked about this, you know, a linked list, or some larger and larger loop. You could have some humongous loop, like the whole system. Could be like one humongous recursive function, let's say. Um, and hard to determine, right? And we could go into more and more encodings. <clears throat> but I think it's interesting to say that um, so when we when we compile the source code of the compiler itself. We reach a point where you have the data is describing the type system. The type system is describing the data. We have a really interesting type of confluence there. Okay? So we'll have a, a field object, for example, whose type is a pointer that points to a node. Or we just start with a pointer to the node. Like anytime we have a pointer to a tree node, Right? That could be any type at all. And, um, okay, now I'm slowly getting it. So once we have that. that at compile time, we won't know what uh, forms these trees will take, supposedly, because a user can define anything they want with them. Now, if, if it's the uh, compiler itself, we know exactly what types 
well, it will take when we compile it. We know what types are used for compiling itself, but when that compiler is then instantiated, this is like the Turing question. You're embedding a Turing machine and feeding it as an input to the Turing machine now. So if you have a type system and you feed that type, you have an open recursive type system, you feed that as an input to the open recursive type system. Uh, <clears throat> then I suppose uh, you could feed another type system as an input and another and another. I mean, let me just think about that. Like, when you compile the compiler, you're preparing the code to run, and when that code is executed, you could then have it compile the compiler again. So, um, the types that are coming down the road to be fed in could just be another instance of this loop and ad nauseum and you could loop this whole thing down to this whole thing could be looped down to the um, as we talked about we went over all of this before so we said you know it could be the um, Python interpreter, which is another open type system. And then in Python you could write another interpreter, and then in that other interpreter you could write another interpreter, just keep on going. <clears throat> so you'll never know when it's gonna end. Unless you do know that it's gonna end. So, if we see each of these interpreters interpreting another interpreter, we could say that's just like a recursive function call, but it's going to a new instantiation of the program, let's say. <clears throat> So the compiler creates a program, and that program runs, and that's another compiler that creates a program, and that program runs. And each one of these is creating some kind of interpreter or program that's not terminating. So we have like layer and layer and layer of nested program. Which in the end, as Alex pointed out, is just a jump that creates a loop. So we have these execution stacks 
things that are indeterminate. creating weird, weird loops. Strange loops. So let's play this out. And yeah. Hey, if you don't like this uh, long and boring talk, you know, you can just click it off right now. But even the most boring talks seem to get two listeners, so I guess someone's at least listening to a couple minutes of this. <clears throat> so, like Democritus Sword, he said, I'm going to continue to do these horrible things until God strikes me down. And he hung a sword over his bed by a thin wire. minute break here all right so if we have a um, if we have different aspects of the uh, system that are describing themselves where they're basically matching they're matching um, themselves and we also need more context as well to say that it's actually matching so the fact that you know the field name is name now the field type um, the type of the field type is actually a struct, not a field, right? So that doesn't match, that's embedded onto a different system, that of the struct. And that struct is part of the tree. So we have parts that are matching completely and we have parts that are encoded into other uh, systems but what I'm thinking is that uh, if we start looking for those and then um, expand them so if we know that the field is of type field decal, so 
we know that the field, if we study it, we'll see that the field is of a structure type field decal. And it has uh, different fields of its own. So field decal struct contains more fields. So we're kind of getting into this area of uh, self-description. But I think what we're going to do is we're going to... Uh, Create a matcher. So we want to basically uh, understand how a struct is encoded, how the tree is encoded into itself. Because only a certain meta-language is actually used to describe to describe itself, right? There's uh, structs and fields and types, but they don't match exactly. They're going more into encoding them into a smaller meta-language. And if you want to then look at how you can describe those uh, instances of that meta-language, you're going to get into just constructors, right? So you're going to have constructors that create um, calls to so the constructor is just a name and a set and a list of fields or a list of parameters and that's going to resolve then to lists a list of fields where the head is some type so it's going to eventually turn into lists of lists and different positions in those lists uh, mean different things. Okay, so now that we've gotten... Well, we basically just need lists and recursive lists. Um, I guess then we could go into, you know, encoding those into a single array where it's like open parentheses some name and then if we encode every symbol as a number and the open parentheses as well close parentheses um,
I think then um, we can make a simple interpreter that will take, um, you know, an input as a string of symbols and then it would interpret those. Now, how can it for, for, produce an interpreter? Well, we're going to need some other things as well. So, we're going to need... Um, some kind of ability to... Uh, well, I was just reading about that. To increment and decrement uh, pointers. Let's see what the, what are the operations we need for this uh, brain. My, uh, brain brain fuck uh, language. Let's see. I was just reading here about this Rust type system. Um, so the guy implemented uh, small fuck. Pointer decrement, pointer increment, flip bit. If the current bit is zero, jump to the matching uh, closing brackets. And then, um, Yeah, I wonder where it's going to end. But basically, it's implementing some kind of jump, and it's, uh, if it's the current bit is zero, then jump to, uh, the matching, jump to the end of the block, otherwise, um, execute the next instruction. So they've got simple jumps. And, uh... I don't think we need to, uh... worry about how to encode things into Turing machines at this point. Um, But basically, you need to be able to um, uh, 
implement some logic to interpret these um, these trees. Yeah, so we're going to need some code that actually interprets um, these fields and lays them out in memory. And then we're going to need some code that um, we're going to need some functions. Okay, so basically what we're talking about here <clears throat> is we're not going to implement the um, Turing stack machines. We're going to implement a compiler, right, where... Um, Well, first of all, first of all, we're going to find the descriptions of the functions that operate on these tree structures. So we don't just have the tree structures, we also have to have the functions that operate on them. And the functions that operate on them are used to compile that stuff to machine language, which is your Turing machine, and um, all right. Well, the next day we're continuing with this, and I'm going to publish it. And look, if you're going to actually sit through this talk, I mean, God bless you. So that's all I got to say. This is my therapy session, so let's go. Let's go. So basically, let's give you some context here. We're studying the tree structures that are being dumped by the compiler, and it's some form of a graph. Now, the nodes that are being dumped are coming out of the tree itself. So we're dealing with an externalized representation of the tree. So we have dumper code that's producing these files. If we reverse engineer the dumper code, we will discover how the file is built. If we reduce, if we do data flow analysis on where the data comes from, from the dumper code, we will find the whole tree structure and all that. Now, if we go ahead and um, <clears throat> see, this is where it gets interesting. If we are to do a dump on this code itself, so it's the dump of the compiler, a dump of the dumper, right? We'll get a description of the dumper code. We'll get a description of the compiler code, right? And um, we will find what we were talking about yesterday, 
that some of these fields that we're looking at will match fields in the file itself, right? So that would be our starting point for a reverse search, right? So we're gonna say, these will give meaning to the file in the dump, right? So we have um, a name field um, in the dump, and that matches a name field in some structure. And we have even the code that emitted that name. So let's say to be fully successful, the uh, system should be able to read in the dump of the dumper code and then be able to reconstruct a parser and assign meaning to the bits and we could even go further and say well if we run the dumping code and then we uh, monitor its execution we can tag the output with the context of how it was executed so we can mark up the output file for every byte of the output file we can give an extra bit of information saying how was that executed what's the context of its execution and we can characterize that so that we can give extra tips and meaning and this is kind of where i'm getting with the introspection that for every point in time for every thread for every execution context, we can add in a little bit of extra information. Just a tiny bit, a little hint. And that gives context to whatever bytes are being outputted or inputted. And that's kind of like the inside out theory, isn't it? Doesn't that like take the internal feeling, internal knowledge and bring it outside? And then, um, assign some meaning to it so that's uh that's uh, really interesting that's deeper than i thought we were going to get today sometimes you just got to sleep over things you know you got to sleep over it you got to think about it you got to let your subconscious do some work and then you come up with some good ideas all right i'm, I'm happy i recorded this let's continue uh thinking about this some more what I was trying to get at before was that reading in the source code that describes the uh, file format is also a, some kind of pattern matching. So we're matching uh, structures that are 
um, <clears throat> that are there with other structures, right? So we're looking for similarities or harmonics, things that um, line up with other things. And that's um, the starting point of similarity and self-similarity. Um, that's what I'm trying to, uh, to think about. Oh boy. I'm almost ashamed to even add more onto this podcast because... It is quite a uh, shit show, but uh, it's a new day, the third day of recording, and um, I had a really good session yesterday just writing my ideas down in my book, or drawing diagrams, as I like to do. And, um, I think I worked out most of these self-similarity things. So, what, what, what's really difficult to understand, I think, in all of this, is that when someone's giving you the instructions to a program and that program is using things like recursion with self-descriptive structures that Sometimes things get slippery in your brain. So that's the one thing. So some things are hard to grasp. And when you're getting metadata about a program, you're essentially getting the full complexity of that program. And a program has a complex use case as well. So that it's not trivial to understand it if you're modeling the tree nodes and the graphs of some other program that's an input that is according to the halting problem basically, I mean in some ways yes. I mean, the tree nodes will definitely halt. There's only a finite number of them. But the interpretation of the description of the program is as powerful as the... It's as powerful as any program can be. So that you will run into endless loops 
and other non-reducibilities, let's say. There's going to be traps for your mind in there. <clears throat> so... Now, a lot of what we're doing in parsing data is reversing the operation of emitting the data. So, the complexity of the data emitted, we're basically trying, if you're going to just get, get some data from a user, some graph, then the problem is, is that you're trying to find what, what they intended. You're trying to find what the original message was. And that can be hard because it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. So if you look at uh, all the different ways you can interpret some input, but only one way is the right way. And trying to find that is basically reversing some of the logic of the original program. So, and that's kind of what we're encountering here, that <clears throat> in order to understand these dumps, of the compiler, we have to understand the compiler. And some of the structures in the compiler create structures in the dumps that are analogous. They're similar or self-similar and, and they're on different levels. And the similarity will become greatness, um, the greatest, when the compiler is talking about itself. So it's describing itself. Now, the nice thing about having the compiler describe itself is that you'll get the entire compiler system in one language and in one's well in multiple streams you have some overlaps because of the nature of how the compiler works if you take all the streams that are resulting from the compiler describing itself and then merge them all together remove all the duplicates you'll have a description which will be quite huge and that description will kind of match the source code but it'll be in a graph structure and that graph structure will correspond there's a correspondence to the code and then because there's correspondences in the code there will be correspondences between different sections of the graph so if you want to understand the structure of the graph, 
you'll look at one part over here, and this one part over here describes some structures about how the graph is built up. So the graph will contain, embedded in it, if you know how to interpret it, all the code for how the graph itself was encoded, right? So it's really a self-describing data structure if you have the key, okay? So think about that for a minute. You've got a data structure that is built up out of primitives and if you interpret it the right way, it will tell you how it is built. Now that's a pretty mind-trippy thing. But in order to interpret it, <clears throat> you also have to know how it was built. Or you look at the regularities in the, in the graph itself. Um, and we can try and derive it, which was what I've been trying to do. But uh, maybe I've been taking too naive approach. Well, I've been also struggling to find the right tools for this. And um, I think Haskell is really the way to go. So in the end, I'm going to be writing a Haskell program that is going to do the interpretation of the graph to reverse the dumping of the data in the graph and then finally And then finally, when we reverse that, we will have reconstructed the source code of the compiler, or at least major parts of it. But it won't be the compiler itself, because a program that will interpret the code of the compiler. I guess we could really make a tool that would actually execute the graph itself so that after a certain point we won't have to um, we won't have to uh, actually After a certain point, we won't actually have to um, know how it works, but we'll just actually execute it. Well, that's a pretty crazy idea. That eventually we could interpret the entire compiler at any point just by looking at these graph structures or interpret parts of it.
<clears throat> or apply transformations to reverse parts of it. It's like, well, here's the dump function. Now let's create a function that reverses the dump function. So yeah, that's some interesting stuff there. Um, okay, well, we are going to continue on this path and I'm just going to keep on tacking stuff onto this journal here. Um, I'll put a big warning at the beginning. This will be my junk pile for introspective for now. Because I know that no one's going to want to listen to this. So it really doesn't matter when I publish it. But I'll just keep on tacking on the infinite stack. So I also thought, well... If there's a queue of the objects that are being visited, what's the reverse of a queue? Can I reverse that with a stack? Or do I need a queue myself? Yeah, so I'm thinking we might take a more straightforward interpretation attempt. All right, I'm going to get going. All right, it looks like we have some more time. Yeah, so there's a queue, and that lists out the objects that are being dumped out. So every object will have a list of things it depends on. And there are circular dependencies as well. And not all of the um, pointers are interesting. Particularly the global top-level declarations will all point to each other or the next in a big list. <clears throat> I guess if you want to have everything in the list, but... Okay, so we can say that we're interested in waiting for certain fields to be fulfilled. And as soon as they're fulfilled, we'll have a stack of objects. We'll have a stack of objects to uh, process. Or we just load all of them. Yeah, and what I've been trying to do 
is look for these larger structures. Larger and larger structures, but maybe at a certain point, it just becomes statistics and patterns. So we'll have larger patterns of structures. And um, I guess I kind of got lost in that area. I got lost in this project many times. But I had a couple of insights. And I think it's time to pull it all together. It's been a real in, uh, inspiration <clears throat> to listen to how other people pull themselves together. And I know how Jocko would deal with these uh, internet restructures. He'd be like, what's our mission? Yeah, I gotta listen to some more Jocko. So, yeah, let's say I had some failure in leadership. And discipline on this project, which caused me to be lost in the swamps, the great swamps of endless computation. All right, so now the uh, sun is starting to come up, and Venus is now high on the sky. So, these guys are talking about Neuralink, right? And now we're going to have such a great connection to the computer. And I'm saying, well, we have a great connection to the computer. And that's the uh, compiler. And it's giving us tons and tons of data. And it's already oh, a ton we don't know how to deal with. So what if we were to take a general attitude 
that whatever program, I mean, I've gone through all of this before in my head, on our paper. But we'll just say it out now. What if we were going to take a general attitude that we were, that when we create these data structures in C, that we don't just compile them down to something that runs in memory. We also have an option to, let's say, capture the actual records and shift them into a global data store or a local data store, meaning not just ephemeral memory, but make them persistent and give them types and understand. Well, they have types, but basically to collect them. So, in the end, we're going to have multiple graphs of nodes that are describing each other when executed. And let's just say they'll have a simple execution, which will, let's say, take a block of data and turn it into a graph, or take a graph of data and turn it into a block. Take a description of a program and turn it into a program that can be run. Or take a program that's a, that can be run and turn it into a description. And, um, right. Take something that outputs something and turn it around into something that inputs something. Now, that might not be possible for all cases because of the loss of information. Because of the recursive nature of things. But that's where we get into tracking That's where we get into tracking things better and saying, okay, well, we don't just run, we don't just produce a block, we attach to that block some metadata about how it was created. So we're going to inject some type of header into it like a hint and those hints will give you enough information to know just where it came from and maybe you'll need an external database for that and maybe that database will be huge okay Because if you compile the compiler in the compiler, right, then all that input that's coming in is going to have a deeper meaning, 
right? Because this is where, this is where we get into the self-descripting stru structures. And <clears throat> just to be clear on this, because in the end, if we are working on the bootstrap code of a self-describing system. We have that system self-describe itself. And then you self-describe it again and again and again until you just get it down to just a bunch, just lisp, just a bunch of opening brackets. That's what I did in Haskell. I dumped the Haskell program, I dumped it out. The tree structures. And then it created a bunch of constructors that we're calling constructors. And eventually, if you keep on applying that, it's going to reduce itself down to a base meta language. Right? where you're just putting things together with some really basic concepts like a list and a function application or a uh, yeah function applications and nested grouping that's what it's going to turn into or whatever meta language you choose, but it's going to reduce every, every. If you keep on dumping out the description of what you have and losing, let's say, your history, right? It's going to turn into a more base and base system. Or I guess in the end, you're just going to have one number, like the girdle number. And in that number, you were doing code your parentheses. Right? You're going to have a mindfuck program. All right. So now, assuming... We can encode everything into some base language, some Turing machine. Um, and we can create axioms or functions on top of that. And larger and larger structures. Like, we don't really want to think about things in terms of mindfuck functions, okay? Because it's clear that we can transform any other language into that. But we want to have more semantic structures. Now... 
the one thing that we don't want are um, what I'm thinking is to have one like ideally I would have a set of set of functions maybe <clears throat> like does a tree structure can it be represented as a function or interpreted by a function so parameters to a function Let's say the function is declare a record structure, or declare a field. But really I want to say declare a record and have the fields embedded in there. And, um, and then I want to say, oh, declare a recursive type. Right? So declare a recursive type, and every time we reference the top of the type like we do the type loop we would have a special symbol in there so we can call that a recursive type with one type now we might encounter more complicated types like codependent types and we can imagine infinitely complicated recursive type structures where it's so hard to decipher them that I guess it would be equivalent to the halting problem. I mean, I can imagine, I can't prove it just yet, but I can imagine that um, we could get in some pretty complicated stuff. like C++, uh, meta-type programming and stuff like that. So, let's just say that we're starting with some basic stuff here. We study them, and we come up with some type of... So the structure that we're studying now is a simple uh, type diff of a union with fields that are structs, contain more structs, all the way down to pointers to the top level item again. So simple recursive structure. Now, some of these types then point to other recursive structures. So, but we're going to keep it simple for now. And I want to say in the end that we're going to declare our recursive structure as one blob that's readable from the beginning and doesn't contain any loops except the explicitly defined loop. So we're going to call that a recursive structure with one type. Simple recursive tree.
and um, I think we can construct everything using constructors straightforward. All right, so if I have a description of a function, let's say I have a description of the dumper function. Now that's going to reference this type tree. So it's going to dump out one of these recursive duck trees. And it has some intermediate structures. But um, how do I want to model the dumper function? And how do we model the description of the dumper function? So I think again we're going to make a function call saying descriptor of a function and that descriptor of a function is going to take a structure that's the data describing the function all together Now, the question becomes, can we turn a function call or description of a function into a real Haskell function that will be executed. And if we execute it, what will it do? And um, so maybe we can't inter we can't answer that just yet. But we can definitely call constructors, data constructors, or type constructors, to describe it. And um, well, let's say that all the data types that are needed by this function are declared ahead of time. And then so you say, like, we have this tree, and we have a dumper function. And it takes the dump, the dumper function takes that um, tree as a parameter and it produces some output, some monad. What we really want to do is we want to have it output a data format. describe the formatting function. So the function that we're going to pass this stuff to is going to say determine the data format 
Well, create me a parser for this output. So create me a parser for this output. It knows the tree structure. And it knows the code. And then it should be able to produce a parser that reverses dumping. Where it produces a descriptor of what would be dumped. And it would handle all the different cases and switches. there yet. I mean, this is a good idea, but we're not there yet, because first we have to better understand function bodies, how they're put together, and really be able to, let's say, execute this code. So we to introduce the next level, which is an instance of that tree. So we have a tree type, we know all the things that it can do, and then can we instantiate that tree type with actual data, so this is kind of where we get into definition of a structure. Well, we said that we need a structure to define the tree. So that's like the meta, the meta level there. So then we're going to actually have a couple of these trees that are defining the different types of trees. We're going to have an array or some functions for the, for the node types. And then we get into some nasty stuff. We have arrays of fields in the compiler, and those are turning into lookup functions. So you have different arrays or vectors of data that are aligned with each other. We want to interpret those as well. and map those onto some kind of Haskell function. So we need to know the name of the variable. We need to be able to resolve global variable names, get at their data. Then we'll make some function that will roll everything up together, like a zipper function, to produce a hash map.
so now the College of New Jersey is state government. So we're going to want to um, be able to reference any of the data by name and uh, to start interpreting it. And then we're going to want to say things like, look up this, um, look up this name and give me the array behind it. Or take the type of that array and turn it into a Haskell data structure. Generate the code. And I think we could use template Haskell for this, actually, where we can generate the where we can generate the actual code using templates instead of spitting out. <clears throat> Good morning. I think uh, we can use I think we can use the um, template Haskell to generate things on the fly instead of generating code and compiling it. And now let's say we have a simple function that will take a simple type descriptor and generate us a way to instantiate that type. So I say take a C type, convert it to a Haskell type. Now I don't know exactly what that Haskell type is going to be. And if I feed it a tree struct, it's going to generate me a tree struct, or a cursive one. So that's interesting. Now, then I'm going to say take this data constructor, take that type, and construct me objects from it. So it's going to interpret the type, interpret the data, and then construct objects of that data. But I still don't know what the type is. 
And now, here's the kicker. If I emit the code, that holds the type and codes the data. Is that creative work that's copyrighted? Or is it just a Or is it just an accidental form? And There we go. So let's look at this again. We're going to transform existing data types into Haskell. read in existing variables I mean okay I'll give it that the license could say that this was derived from this other thing hey good morning guys you could say that this data was derived from this other thing and um, that's the source we could keep it separate and clearly licensed automatically translated from this other thing but the usage of that does not imply any ownership Okay, so basically, if I derive some tree structures or some code from some of my code, and the source again applies the source license of the input. Not the transformer. If I'm hand coding something, then it's mine. If I'm hand coding something based upon some other data structure that appears, it's still mine. 
because I'm making creative decisions basically to hold that data. And if I'm transforming directly based upon their description, a description of their code, and translating directly, then that translator is mine, but the output code is theirs, or is glued to the base license. Okay. So that's pretty good. Let's take a break. Okay guys, I'm gonna just publish this uh, because I wanna have an episode every day, so this is what you get today.